0: Hello and welcome to the Samoff Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service and various specialties. Today we are fortunate to have Dr. Bradley with us. Dr. Bradley is a Lieutenant Commander in the United States Navy and the Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology at Uniformed Sciences University of Health Science. I started following him over a year ago on Instagram where he posts his experience as a Navy anesthesiologist to include his recent humanitarian mission aboard the USNS Comfort. He graciously agreed to speak with us about his experience, his specialty in the United States Navy, and for that I am grateful. So, without further ado, welcome Dr. Bradley. How are you? Hey Brian, I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. I I'm pretty excited. Uh, I've been following you for a little while on Instagram anyways and uh been kind of watching and seeing and I've really enjoyed uh, your page because it's kind of given us some insight into what it's like to be an anesthesiologist and more specifically in the Navy so that's been uh, pretty awesome awesome happy to help and we can certainly if if you want we can share um, the the ad tech for you so that people can find you later sure that'd be great all right, so uh, so for our first question is uh, really just the basics. Uh, I know I shared a little bit about you already, but do you, you wanna share like where you're from, what medical school you went to, how you got into the
1: Navy, any family information? Sure, so I'm Stephen Bradley, I'm an anesthesiologist, uh, board certified by training. I attended the Howard University College of Medicine in Washington, DC. I actually applied for the HPSP um, when I was a first year medical student and ended up not being selected to the program. I went on to attend the University of Chicago Medical Center for my residency in anesthesiology and critical care. And at that point, I accepted the FAP, so the Financial Assistance Program. So I ended up uh, joining after my intern year. I swore in, um, and after the three years of anesthesia residency or or finishing up the four-year program, I came on active duty with the Navy. the reason I, I ended up joining the Navy was I'm a, I'm a Navy brat, so grew up living up and down the East Coast. My dad was a surface warfare officer. who retired after 21 years as lieutenant commander of the Navy. And then my little brother did um, ROTC in college. So he actually joined and came on active duty while I was still finishing up medical school. So it was an honor to have my brother. He flew up to Chicago when I swore in under the FAP program, and he actually swore me into the Navy.
0: Oh, man, that's, that's got to be kind of special. I wish I had, like, family to help do that for me. Yeah, it was uh, pretty cool. So uh, what made you choose anesthesiology?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, during medical school, I arrived at Howard. I didn't really know what I was interested in. At the time, I think I was leaning towards orthopedic surgery. Then I met the other orthopedic surgeons at Ross. I didn't have that personality. I didn't have that that drive <laughs> and that focus and I was kind of lost for the first two years. I talked to a bunch of my friends, saw what they were interested in. I waited till after I got my step one results, and then I looked at my score, and that kind of put me in, in the range for matching into anesthesiology. I had a buddy who was really um, gung-ho about anesthesia, so I was like, cool, this will be a great plan B. I was lucky that the American Society of Anesthesiologists had their annual conference In DC that year. So I actually walked from my apartment down to the convention center, went to the convention. It was great. I liked learning about anesthesia. It's definitely something I could have seen myself practicing in, but I kind of suspended belief and I just completed, you know, the rest of my third year with anesthesia as a plan B, but with plan A open in case I saw something that changed my mind. And I almost went into surgery during my surgical rotation as a third-year medical student, I really, really, really enjoyed surgery, and more so I enjoyed the time I spent in the surgical ICU. I loved taking care of those critically ill, complex patients and be able to organize their medical conditions and organize and formulate a plan based on all the different intricate features of their uh, pathophysiology. So I was leaning towards doing general surgery, and then one weekend I was working in the ICU. And I ended up scrubbing in to help the acute care attending in the operating room. And she took out a Coley's, a laparoscopic colostectomy. And I remember holding the camera and just thinking like, oh my God, this is so boring. <laughs> and I just couldn't picture myself having to operate to pay the bills. You know, And that would be the life as a trauma surgeon. You'd be doing a lot of acute care surgery and lap coli's and lap appies And It was interesting, but it's not something I wanted to lock myself into along with the super busy call schedule. So talking with that attending afterwards, you know, she kind of pulled me to the office and was talking about critical care medicine. I told her that's what I really, really enjoyed about trauma surgery. And she told me, you know, you can do critical care through a number of different pathways. You can do internal medicine and do pulmonary critical care. You can do PEDS. um, You can do anesthesia. And that kind of married the two things that I liked in my head, anesthesiology and critical care. And from that point on, this is probably halfway through my third year of medical school. I was like, all right, sure, I'm going to go full tilt and I'm going to apply to anesthesiology. So I kind of have similar
0: views because I, I'm also very interested in critical care. So that, that kind of leads me into my uh, next kind of question here. Um, have you done a fellowship in critical
1: care by chance? I have not. So when you apply to anesthesia programs, they each anesthesia department kind of has a specialty, if you will. So at University of Chicago, we were the, part, the department of anesthesiology and critical care. I think Hopkins is anesthesiology and pain medicine. I think there's one out west that's anesthesiology and perioperative medicine. So they kind of build themselves as kind of the second thing, the second best thing that they're good at. So anesthesiology at uh, University of Chicago, it's a powerhouse program for ICU and critical care. It's kind of the focus of their program, aside from all the other general anesthesia things that they have going on. So I have not done the fellowship yet. I was going to apply coming out of residency. But having taken that FAP scholarship, I had to check in with the Navy. And I remember um, because after I swore in, like nobody talked to me from the military, (laughs) <laughs> ever for the next three years. Um, so before I applied to residency though, I remember thinking I should probably ask the Navy if I could do this, um, before applying to fellowship. So I Googled like Navy anesthesiology and I found a name and specialty leaders, kind of like a good person to ask. So I emailed that person and was told, you know, the Navy doesn't have any need for critical care, trained anesthesiologists at this time. And, and that was fine, you know, so I did not end up applying. I have not yet done the critical care fellowship, but I do hope to go back and, and complete that soon.
0: Fantastic. So, um, as far as that goes, so you currently, your role is assistant professor, uh, of anesthesiology for the u uh, school, correct?
1: Correct. I am, I am an assistant professor.
0: Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you do on the day-to-day as an assistant professor?
1: Yeah, so it's important to kind of talk about academic appointments. So wherever you go, especially as, you know, you finish up medical school, you finish up your residency, and you get involved in an academic program. So you pretty much do need to be involved in resident education. Um, But with an academic appointment, you know, you apply and you basically say, hey, I'm going to be working and teaching a resident physicians and be involved in ACGME work, and you fill out some paperwork with USIS, in my case, and after a couple of months, they extended the offer for assistant professorship, and, and I accepted, of course. This happens at most academic centers. On the outside or civilian programs, typically, at least for anesthesiology, they'll want you to have completed a fellowship at a lot of places before they offer assistant professorship, uh, but once you're on that track, there's a couple of things you do academically to promote from assistant to associate, and then eventually to full professor. So on the on the outside, I mean, full professorship takes 18, you know, 12 to 18 years to attain, and you have to have a significant body of research and contributions to the field and presentations. So each level from assistant professor to associate professor, you're doing more more things. So to become an associate, it would probably take a good six or eight years. I'm just kind of guessing. I haven't really looked into it. And I'd have to do a certain number of presentations locally. I'd have to go to different institutions to do presentations. I'd have to produce research. There is some clinical track stuff as well. Um, So that's kind of how the professorship system works in resident education. When it comes down to the day-to-day task, I'm at one of the larger MTFs, so we do have an anesthesiology residency program. We have six residents a year, usually, in addition to the emergency medicine residencies and general surgery residencies and all the other programs, it's one of the larger teaching hospitals, so I'm involved in quite a few different um, educational opportunities. I work with interns and medical students when they rotate through the operating rooms, I work with emergency medicine residents when they do their OR rotation, and every day, you know, depending on who I'm working with, I'm discussing topics in anesthesia and critical care that are relevant to what we're doing that day or that the learner can benefit from. And for my residents, you know, I want them to, or sorry, the, res- the residents that I work with. I'm trying to get away from saying my resident and using the, the possessive, but the residents I work with, I am invested in helping them pass their boards to give them direction the and teach them things in anesthesiology that they may not have encountered yet, or that they may need to brush up on. Or as I observe their progress, I can catch things. I think that they've let slide and, and just make them a better uh, consultant anesthesiologist in the future.
0: With that be, between being in the military or having done a civilian residency and uh, at- Acting as assistant professors, what what would you say are the some of the major differences between practicing anesthesiology in the civilian sector versus in the military sector? And are there any lessons learned or things that you took away from those different
1: settings? Yeah, it's a uh, very very different um, in terms of training and in terms of structure. So when you have your military programs, there's so much flux and people are always moving and PCSing, you know, usually every three years. And then some of the senior people may have other positions that allow them to extend. So they'll be there for six years or eight years. But on the outside, you have people in in, in the seizure departments that have been there for 20 years. You know, the, the chair for your department on the outside may have been an anesthesiologist for 20, 25 years already. Um, and they have an institutional culture. They have institutional um, heritage and, and and brand, if you will. So you don't have that in, in the military because on average, the staff is a lot junior. So I think one of the most senior people that I work with has been an anesthesiologist for Maybe 12 years. I think is the, is the most senior person in, in my department right now, um, and we all kind of average between two to to five years of practice. So unfortunately, what that translates into is you know working on the on the outside at a at a established and esteemed academic practice. You have these senior staff members. So if you're a new surgeon coming out of training, you have the senior surgeon who's a full professor who has been operating for 20 years and they have that experience that they can lean, lean into and, and draw from. So we don't have that quite so much, at least in my experience in the military. Um, but you know, that the function is different as well because at military treatment facilities, we're, we are doing research, but we're not doing the same type of research as they are doing on the outside. Our mission is different. Our mission is to, enhance the war fighting capabilities of the military. So we don't necessarily need to have that, uh, that level that they have on the outside. We need to be able to protect and, and take care of service members when they're injured. That's the main goal and purpose of us as military physicians. So that's one of the, the biggest differences when it comes down to, to residency training, you know, that's translated into, the, it, it has downstream ramifications. So at University of Chicago, we had a huge cardiac program, um, we had heart transplants, lung transplants, liver transplants, kidney transplants, all, you know, very robust surgical service, surgical, pra- surgical practice, sorry, a very robust surgical practice, which translates into a robust anesthesiology practice. So at the bigger military medical centers, I can only speak for the Navy for the most part, because I think they still do a fair amount of cardiac at, um, I think, SAMC, one of the Army and Air Force hospitals. I think they do a lot of cardiac there. Um, but there's only one military, one Navy hospital that's still doing cardiac surgery up at Walter Reed. So having residents, you know, be able to get a robust cardiac experience, you know, we're able to set up partnerships and we do send our residents out to different institutions so they can get the complex neurosurgery experience, cardiac anesthesia, paid anesthesia. So we're able to supplement a lot of those experiences. Whereas if you train on the outside, depending on the program you're at, that all may be in-house. Because, you know, even, I guess, across the board, right, there's a a scale of residency programs. So you have your Harvards and your UCSFs, which which have everything to offer. Then you have your smaller programs that don't offer as much resources. And then military programs, you know, fall somewhere in between that. And as you're looking at programs, you're just looking at what does this program offer and what does this program not offer, you know? So that's kind of how the differences come to be in, in military residency as well as practice.
0: Okay. So speaking of shipping out, um, I know it's something I'm very interested in. And I think uh, a lot of other students, because I think that's a part of why we go into the military uh, beyond service tradition and things like that is also for the opportunity to do unique things like operational tours. And I know you are on a recent operational tour on the Comfort, did you wanna speak a little bit about that and what your experiences were and what you liked or
1: maybe didn't like about it? Yeah, shipping out, I like that uh, segue. (laughs) So I checked into my command in the fall of 2018, I finished residency in 2018. And when you check in, at least for us in the military or in the Navy, you're, you're assigned a billet. So I'll be stationed at Naval Medical Center Portsmouth but I was billeted to the USNS Comfort hospital ship. And then the person who was a critical core anesthesiologist actually got out of the Navy. So then I filled that role. So how it worked for the Comfort was there's the critical core, which is a nurse anesthetist and anesthesiologist from, in terms of the anesthesia presence on the ship. And then depending on the mission, they bring on more crew, the the reserve operating status, the FOSS, the full package, depending on what they're going to do, that's how they decide, you know, how many anesthesiologists do they need, how many surgeons, how many nurses. So as the critical core member, though, every time the ship goes out, I'm attached to the ship. But if the ship's not going anywhere, it's just sitting in, in at the dock, then I just work at my normal job. So in May of 2019, we found out, you know, they were planning a humanitarian aid mission It's going to be six months and go to 12 different countries, just doing humanitarian aid, um, and, uh, you know, low risk outpatient surgeries just to, to kind of spread good vibes uh, across Central America, South America and the Caribbean. So since I was attached to the ship, you know, I showed up in uh, late May and started to go through inventory. You know, nobody really taught me how to do any of this. I didn't really know what the mission was. Um, I didn't know what we had in stock. I didn't know who had ordered stuff. And I was the department head of anesthesiology, uh, as it were. So, you know, I'm I'm looking through lists, trying to decide, you know, what do we absolutely need to be able to do the mission? On the hospital ship, there are, uh, it says on Wikipedia, eight operating rooms, uh, CT scanners, um, a bunch of ward spaces. In in actuality, we probably have about, you know, four to six good working operating rooms. We have a, we do have an IR suite, which is pretty cool. So... Each of those rooms had an anesthesia machine in it, so that was good. We had paper charts, you know, figuring out what kind of records are we going to take, what kind of pre-op forms. So I gathered up the forms and the paperwork. I talked with the pharmacist. I'd actually gone to Officer Development School with the pharmacist that was on the mission, so we had a good relationship. And you know, looked at the formulary and what medications we were going to have for the mission and make sure we had enough of the emergency medications that we needed, you know, dantrolene or if you're doing anesthetics in case you're into MH, um, just all the critical care medications and drugs that we would need. And finally we, you know, pushed off in June, heading down to Miami and then through the Panama Canal, we ended up having a full complement. I believe there were uh five anesthesiologists and and four nurse anesthetists on that mission, and we ended up doing 1,200 surgical procedures is what the numbers say, but 600 of those were cataracts, which we didn't usually provide anesthesia for. The the patients would take a Valium and just kind of sit there. The ophthalmologist would numb their eyes up and be able to do the surgery under um, very light sedation. So we did a good amount. I think I personally did 90 or 95 cases. We did a lot of pallets because there was a plastic surgeon, a Navy plastic surgeon that came with us. There's also a Canadian oral maxillofacial surgeon, a couple of Navy OMFS guys. There were three or four general surgeons. There was a, a Navy peed surgeon. There were two Navy ophthalmologists. There was a ophthalmologist from the Mexican army actually who, uh, embarked with us. Interesting. And let's see, we had a urologist that joined us. Uh, So we had a a pretty, pretty good complement of physicians. And, you know, we had the OR nurses and the PACU nurses and the ward nurses and the ICU nurses and all that went along with it. So we had to kind of monitor and screen patients to see who was um, low risk enough to come on the ship. And we kind of avoided the higher risk cases because we weren't really set up to deal with all that so, yeah, we, we went to 12, 12 mission stops. Um, it was long. It was uh, rewarding. It was probably one of the better um, operational tours to go on in certain regards. You know, you're stuck on a ship. The accommodations aren't great, but <laughs> you do get to use your skill set. There are different operational billets that they'll send anesthesiologists on. Um, so the, the carriers are usually staffed by nurse anesthetists. So each carrier that goes out usually has one certified registered nurse anesthetist on board. They have a general surgeon. They have a dentist or an OMFS as well. And so anesthesiologists don't usually do the deployments on the ships. There's a couple of platforms that go to sea with anesthesiologists, but we also go operational with marine med battalions. So when they're on a um, LHD or LHA, you'll have an anesthesiologist as part of that forward surgical team that's attached to that ship. So whenever they go out to deploy, they'll sit out to sea for six months with the full surgical group. Uh, There's also, you know, deployments in Djibouti and Iraq and Afghanistan, where there's a spot billeted for anesthesiologists, but it kind of goes up to whoever's doing this mission planning, whether it's spots are for anesthesiologists or CRNAs and for how many, and that's kind of what we do. But a lot of these missions, you know, thank God that the wars have died down, and we're not usually seeing much combat. So it's not uncommon for folks to go out for six months, uh, boots on ground, and come back doing, having done, you know, as few as two or three cases in that time. Oh wow! So uh, it sounds like so the CRNAs
0: get used for uh, a lot of deployments are you guys largely use interchangeable with them or is there kind of like staggering of how the cases look for it or
1: what do you think um you know in terms of the, the billets that's way above i don't know who decides who goes where but you know usually with the marines marines i think purchased some anesthesiologist billets so um in terms of organizational work flow from what i understand like the, if the marine corps buys billets and they the military, the Navy has to staff it with, with whoever they, they request. So I think the Marines have anesthesiologist billets, but the other groups, you know, I'm not sure who makes those decisions. They're already established in right. these kind of, uh, as a anesthesiologist leaves this deployment, the next one's geared up to go yep. and the ratios kind of stay the same.
0: Okay. Um, so the reason that I knew about your deployment is obviously, cause I followed you, followed you on Instagram. Um, I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit of, uh, about your Instagram, why you started it and uh, the things that you do with that and maybe commenting on uh, officership and the use of social media, because I know that that's a really hot topic. And I think even though it's been around for a while, I think uh, professionals are still very much uh, learning or finding the happy middle ground on using that. So I certainly want to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, um, you know it's kind of uncharted territory for me. I'm just kind of doing my thing and and seeing what happens. I know, like in Twitter, people will have their bios like tweets are my own, and those are the Department of Defense. Like I don't I don't think I put that in my Twitter handle just because I think it's kind of obvious and <laughs> and doesn't need to be said. Sure. But when it comes to Instagram. I, you know, my, my profile picture is me in civilian clothes. I'll occasionally post in uniform, but I do try to to limit that because I don't want the military to be the overarching theme of my social media. I'm an anesthesiologist in the Navy, and so the the theme to my social media is mostly health, education, and the community, and discussing with other physicians and, and healthcare workers, and, and collaborating on social media. So I do kind of try to limit the amount of military pictures I, I have because I don't want that to be interpreted as me using my uniform to you know, inf- further different agendas. I know there are clear policies on what you can and can't say online when it comes to politics, when it comes to respect for our leadership. So I, I do tend to follow those uh, black and white boundaries. But when it comes to um, like endorsements, I, I really don't have any endorsements at the moment. I haven't been really looking to be endorsed by anybody because I, I, in parks, I don't want to have to worry about being service-connected and, and, and that drama. But I, I know other military officers who do have endorsements and they haven't had any problems. I think it's not a problem until it becomes one, I guess, that's the kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of professionalism, you know, I, I – it's obvious, you know, with social media and with the internet that everything we do is uh, completely public and wide open. It's not hard to figure out who somebody is, especially when I use my real name on social media. And then they'll scroll through a dozen pictures and see them in the military. So having that transparency helps keep me honest and accountable and appropriate because I know I can't, you know, just post crazy stuff because it's going to, come back at some point in time. So, so far, you know, I haven't had a problem. We have a, you know, a pretty hot political climate right now, you know, so maybe I'll uh, repost people's comments or pictures as long as it's not too crazy or, or too offensive or too rude, you know, I'll kind of toe the line. But I, uh, I do take into account um, what statements I'm making and how it could come off to other people out there. Yeah,
0: I would I would say that that's one of the things that I kind of experience. I, I guess uh, people from the outside looking in often feel like we're not able to express our individuality, and that's not necessarily true. But we are kind of held to a standard that the general public isn't. And we do have to kind of be careful about how we present ourselves, because whether we like it or not, or whether we say it or not, we are still a representation of our branch and of the U.S. military as a whole.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know there's like different groups because um, I follow them on, on Instagram, like TikTok. Or military TikTok or something. And there's like, you know, people that do TikTok videos in their uniform. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's something that I think I'm not going to do because (laughs) it's a bit much, but, you know, the videos are are kind of entertaining. Um, There's definitely people that do that. And I don't know what kind of repercussions they may or may not have from doing so. Um, But, you know, it's just not for me. Yeah. And for anybody
0: who's listening, uh, if you want to find Dr. Bradley or Lieutenant Commander Bradley on Instagram, you can find him at Stephen Bradley MD, correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's me, TikTok videos and all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so with that, it kind of leads to my next question, which is uh, as future physicians and as current officers in various levels of training and points in our career. uh, Are there any pitfalls you would recommend us avoiding or lessons you've learned that uh, would be beneficial for us to essentially learn by you telling us rather than us learning the hard way?
1: Yeah. So it's a very interesting dynamic. The more, The longer I'm in the Navy, the more I see and the more I think, and the more I open my eyes to the fact that we're all coming from different places. So like yourself, you were um, uh, prior enlisted. You have some heritage. You have some bearing. You know what you're getting into, at least in terms from the military standpoint. You have people that did HPSB, that went to officer development school back when they were a first-year medical student. They went straight through with outside training, so – You know eight years later or seven years later they're just now putting the uniform on again after a seven-year gap so they're kind of you know whatever they learned in five weeks of ods that's what they're going to use in terms of military bearing for me i showed up actually (laughs) so funny story i got my orders i drove from chicago to virginia and checked into my command and I didn't have a uniform cause I hadn't been to ODS yet. So the thing says, you know, check in a uniform. I was like, whatever. I put a nice suit on. I had, uh, uh, locks down to my shoulder. You know, I knew to cut those. I cut the locks off. Um, I shaved, I put on my nicest suit and I checked in so I'd answer these questions They're like oh are you civilian no are you a resident no are you an intern no like who are you I'm a staff anesthesiologist where's your uniform I'm in ODS yet and then they just get like you know puzzled look so I went around the whole hospital checking in and had to answer those questions like every time I turned my head so then I sat around for like two weeks and then I finally went to ODS and then I was able to learn how to be a military officer. One of the CRNAs took me and, and showed me where to get uniforms from the thrift store, the, the military thrift store, and, and it kind of showed me what I needed to to wear. So that was my experience coming in, you know, and I come in as a senior 03 and a year later I promoted to 04. So along the way there's different uh, road bumps, uh, speed bumps rather. But I think with the medical corps is kind of why we looked at, strangely in, in the in the Navy at least, you know, we're we're senior officers, but kind of not really, because a lot of us don't know the military traditions, the customs, the policies. I had a coworker who came in as an O four and she came straight out of private practice for twelve years. So when it comes to medical corps, the rank doesn't necessarily um, reflect time in service. So I and try to be very humble. I try to be very cognizant of how things may be perceived or come across, or I look around and just kind of see what everybody else is doing and kind of try and do the same thing. So I, <laughs> I fit in, to be honest, like most of the time I'm in the military, I just pretend like, like I just, you know, watched uh we were soldiers or whatever military movies I, I watched and I, I pretend that I'm a, I'm, I'm acting and it's worked so far. Um, I, you know, I rarely ever uni- wear a uniform. I, I, I wear civilian clothes into work. Uh, so, you know, remembering to salute when I'm actually in uniform is something that, that I think now I'm, I'm pretty good at, but in terms of roadblocks or or things to look out for, for medical folks that are becoming officers, you know, I think just be humble and some, sometimes you're going to have those enlisted or senior enlisted, you know, correct your military bearing or sorry, did that, uh. It cut out for a second. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I had a, had a phone call. Um. Sorry. One second. Somebody's trying to call me. One second. All right. Sorry. So, so you'll you'll have some senior enlisted or some even junior enlisted that are going to correct your military bearing, and depending on how they do so, you know, as long as in a nice, professional way. They're looking out for you and and trying to make you the best service member they they can be. And the other thing is to remember that the junior sailors or or, uh, soldiers are looking up to you as well, and you do have to set an example for them.
0: Yeah, I would say that my battalion surgeons had a lot to do with my uh, choosing to continue to pursue medicine and actually had a lot to do with uh, encouraging me and teaching me and things like that. So I certainly looked up to them quite a bit. Um, As far as some other questions that we have here, uh, advice wise for students that are interested in pursuing maybe anesthesiology, uh, do you have any advice for them?
1: Yeah, it depends on uh, where you are in the process. You know, if you are, HPSP, definitely check about full-time out-service spots, um, you know, or, the, or there's a military residency training programs. Just look at what you want out of a residency training program and see which program most closely aligns with what you desire and what, you're, what you would like to be around. You know, location is huge when it comes to picking residency programs, so obviously there's there's only a couple of places for military residency programs dc which is great uh virginia and san diego so if you want to live in some place that's not one of those three places then you should see about the out service positions
0: okay um and then lastly on our list and then we'll be wrapping it up from here is uh, do you have any recommendations on how we can develop that Officership, kind of like what you were talking about before. There's kind of a limitation on what we can do as far as the military, especially while we're still in medical school. But do you have any recommendations on what we can do to kind of develop ourselves in preparation for uh, true active duty service after medical
1: school? Yeah, I think that's a a good question. It's a tough question. It's something that I still kind of struggle with because there is different pathways. If you are going to be career service member and you're going to stay in for a while, you need to make rank. You're going to be approaching things a little differently. You're going to be more aggressive about taking on different collaterals and different leadership opportunities. Depending on your end goal, if you're doing your service commitment and getting out, then you may focus on still contributing to the department, but also you know setting yourself up for the career that you want after the after your military service is complete. Mm -hmm. When it comes to being and an officer, you're balancing that, or in my head, at least, I'm balancing being the best military officer I can be with being the best clinician I can be. And usually those things coincide and go together. But at some point, you know, you can't be 100% squared away military officer and, you know, the best emergency medicine position or the best anesthesiologist. You just don't have the time. Um, What happens is as you want to promote, usually you're going to start doing more non-clinical activities. You're going to start taking leadership positions and and the uh, MEC president, the um, uh, director for surgical services, all these different positions, which take your clinical time down significantly. So for me, I would much rather be clinical and my contribution to the Navy and to military medicine is being able to teach resident physicians who are going to be future um, staff members in a critical wartime specialty. So that's my contribution to the Navy. Um, but it's something that you're going to have to decide early early on in your career. There's a ER doc at Portsmouth, Dr. Schofer, who has a fantastic blog, and he has a timeline for where you should be Coming into the military, depending on what your goals are, if you want to promote, these are the positions you need to take, these are what you need to do. There is a clinical track, but you know it doesn't usually compare as well to somebody that's, that has a more robust portfolio and CV. So a lot of it comes down to, to determining where do you want to be in a couple of years and what are your long-term plans with the, the military? I'm not saying you know be lazy and, and be a crappy officer, but- you know, is being president of the Blood Bank Utilization Committee and the Organ Tissue Donation Committee, is that going to help your long-term plan? That may help you reach 04 or 05, but that won't help you become a better physician. That won't help you if you decide to separate from the military down the road. So it's it's, uh, an ever-changing, ever-evolving process that I, I don't have a perfect answer for. I think people will know once they get in, they'll be able to find mentorship and guidance in whatever direction that they want to pursue. Fantastic. I,
0: I appreciate all the insight that you've given us today. It's been uh, really awesome. I've truly enjoyed it. Um, giving me a lot to think about personally, while I'm not obviously going into the Navy, as we discussed before, uh, but this is still a lot of very, very useful information just in terms of on military anesthesia and just military residency
1: in general. So I thank you for sharing with us. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on to share. Absolutely. I I will say I I am starting up on my YouTube channel, uh, Stephen Bradley, MD on YouTube as well. I'm gonna be sharing specific videos on military medicine and military life as an anesthesiologist.
0: Oh, I'll definitely have to plug in on that. All right, and so with that, we'll go ahead and do the wrap up. That wraps up our episode with Dr. Bradley today. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences with us and future military physicians. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.